We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. Are you restless, wound up and having trouble concentrating, or find your mind goes completely blank? Do you have problems controlling feelings of worry, especially about other people and how they will react? Do you fixate on the worst possible outcomes, throw in muscle tension and disturb sleep, Yes, on this edition of The Meaningful Life, we're talking about anxiety. My witness is Dr. Kathleen Smith, who's a licensed therapist from Washington, D.C., USA, and the author of an excellent book called Everything Isn't Terrible. Conquer your insecurities, interrupt your anxiety, and finally calm down. We will be focusing on anxiety in relationships because that's my area of expertise too, but it can affect your work. And Kathleen's book also covers general anxiety about the state of the world. And let's face it, how can you lead a meaningful life and answer the big questions about how to live if you're fixated on 101 daily anxieties? Welcome, Kathleen. Thank you. Now, anxiety is a natural human emotion. We all experience it. How do you know if it's becoming a problem? Well, that's a great question. (laughs) You know, I think... Most people don't take the time to reflect on the reality that anxiety has a a purpose. You know, we need to be able to act quickly when there's a threat, right? Those biological origins that they're universal to most living things, right? But the funny thing about being human is that we can anticipate or imagine what could go wrong or what could be threatening. And sometimes our capacity to kind of make those predictions or evaluate how threatening a situation or another person actually is is a little out of whack, so to speak. (laughs) And um, we end up sort of um, reacting not to the reality, but to the what ifs, right? And then we we get into more trouble. You know, there's this saying that our reactions to a problem can cause more of a problem than the problem itself. And I think that's certainly true in our relationships as well. So what is the difference then? And I think this is really important that we work this out. What's the difference between anxiety and fear? Let me give you my definition, at least my theoretical, for my theoretical orientation. You know, I'm trained in Bowen family systems theory, and there's this idea that anxiety is sort of your response to a real or to an imagined threat. So there is an emotional piece to it, like fear, but there's also sort of the behavioral response, right? (laughs) And how we bind up or how we choose to manage that anxiety, right? So there, so fear can be a part of it. It could also be frustration, worry, <laughs> you know, being annoyed by someone, even being bored. Those are all kind of different flavors that anxiety can take. It doesn't have to be outright fear, if that makes sense. But something is seen as sort of being a disturbance or being a threat. And then we do what we predictably do to kind of manage it, if that makes sense. So fear can be a piece of it, but there are lots of ways that I think anxiety can kind of manifest. So what was your relationship to anxiety growing up? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, I think that everyone likes to think, or most people like to think they had a pretty anxious family. And I, I certainly 
think I did. You know, I was an only child. I was very focused on achieving. I think that was how I managed my anxiety was sort of by performing and keeping my parents happy and keeping my teachers happy, you know, and any sort of deviation outside of that was seen as a huge threat. And eventually I got older and learned that it was actually quite survivable to not achieve or to quit something, but it took me a long time to sort of figure that out. Can you give us an anecdote from your childhood that would sort of demonstrate to us how your parents' anxiety might have been transmitted onto you so we can really get the picture? Yeah, well, one example would be, um, I think my mom probably was more focused on my performance in school than my dad was. But, she, you know, she would ask me a question like, you know, are you sure you did your absolute best? You know, <laughs> which, you know, and, and but the reality is it's OK to be mediocre at a lot of things. You know, we don't have the time and attention and energy as humans to do our absolute best at everything. So I think a question like that sort of plagued me as a child, <laughs> because, you know, if that means getting a, a 99 on a test, then, yeah, I probably could have gotten 100. So the answer would be no, I didn't do my absolute best. Right. And uh, I think she had very good intentions. But, you know, questions like that, I think, dialed up the anxiety. <laughs> I can't tell you how many clients I've got who had parents that said to them, congratulations on coming third, but why did you only come third in the class? Right. She, fortunately, she, you know, she never asked that. She never said, why, you know, why are you second? Why are you third? But she sort of knew what my capabilities were and was going to hold me to them. So I can understand how you came to write the book on anxiety. <laughs> So anxiety seems to show up a lot in relationships. And the way it shows up in relationships is often focusing on other people's reactions. Now, you put it beautifully in your book. You say you need each other more and then you're more allergic to each other's reactions. So perhaps you can unpack that for me. Yeah, in Bowen theory, at least, you know, there's this idea that there are kind of two great forces at work at least in human life, there's individuality and there's togetherness, right? And some of us just grow up in families where there is more togetherness. There's just less capacity to think and act for ourselves. There's more of a tendency to want to control or manage other people in order to keep yourself calm. And the people sort of who have the highest togetherness needs, paradoxically, are the people who are the most allergic to each other. <laughs> you know, the people who don't need the togetherness as much actually tend to have better relationships. They tend to enjoy them more and they're more fulfilling because there is this less of a focus on treating the other person like they're an extension of yourself. And if the other person is upset, then that's going to sort of bleed into you. And I mean, the idea of sort of, I've been infected by your mood I'm sure you get that a lot in, in your office too. How do you begin to actually help people not be so focused on each other? Well, the first thing I ask people is, what are you doing and how effective has that been? You know, <laughs> how have how effective have, have your attempts been to get your husband to take out the trash or <laughs> to unload the dishwasher or, you know, to get your, your mother to stop making comments about your weight? And most people will say, you know, actually hasn't been that effective. I'm curious about what could make a difference, you know? Because this is another way you put it that I absolutely loved. You try and control the other person to feel safer. So you say, I mean, these are not the actual words you use, but this is effectively what you're saying. Please behave better so I can calm down. 
expand on that for me. Yeah, I think, you know, that is the sign of the togetherness, right? To to reach out and want to focus and manage others as a way of calming things down, you know? So often with anxiety, we take an individual focus, but our relationships are a very convenient mechanism for calming things down and for stabilizing each other and for ourselves. And in families, people might disagree on who the person is who needs to do the changing, or everyone might agree that the sibling, this parent needs to do the changing, right? And that is not very useful for those people, but it's very useful for the whole family because then, you know, it's very calming to not feel like you're the problem, right? <laughs> uh, or that the the changing lies elsewhere. Um, that is, you know, that stabilizes things to a degree. And if people go along with it, it works, but there's a cost. And the cost particularly is for the person who everybody's pointing at, you know, that, for example, you're too sensitive. I mean, what's it like to be the person that everybody's pointing at? Well, usually people become reactive. They become more helpless. Uh, they might rebel uh, or they might go along with it and then sort of lose themselves in the process and their own capacity to think for themselves and to act for themselves. Or if, to give another example, you know, a kid who's seen as the problem, you know, they tend to start if someone treats you like the problem, you start acting like the problem, right? That re that reinforces it. And so the cost is that somebody loses loses what uh, is called self in Bowen theory, and they are uh, a little less capable than the others. And that just sort of happens naturally in families, but I think in, in organizations and other groups as well. And what's it like to be the person pointing the finger? Because on one level, you feel better, but actually you've got actually less control over your feelings because, in a sense, you're expecting somebody else to change. Absolutely. It can be very frustrating. I, th I mean, I think there are benefits as well. Often you look in a marriage and one person is sort of identified as the patient or the problem, right? The other person can actually do pretty well. They might be in good health. They might be very successful at their work, right? But they still are very frustrated and confused as to why the other person won't step up or take more responsibility or take care of themselves. And they don't see their part in the equation. And if the other partner says, you're controlling, then the, um, the proverbial S-H-I-T hits the fan <laughs> and there's a huge row. Yeah. And then it turns into conflict. So there is a big downside to outsourcing our feelings to someone else, which is that we think that the answer is with the other person. So how do we begin to turn this onto ourselves and actually recognise what we need to do to change rather than coming up with that list of things that the other person needs to do to change? I always talk about how curiosity is the antidote or one of the antidotes to anxiety to begin to look at the relationship process and ask, you know, like I said before, to ask yourself, what have I been doing and how effective has it been? Is there a way for me to not push down my feelings, but to be more aware of the process? And that makes me less angry, less frustrated and more interested in how I can respond in a more flexible way. Uh, in a different way than what I usually do. And is that useful? You know, can you can you be curious about what makes a difference? You know, when I have clients who go home for the holidays, I tell them, you know, put on your researcher hat, you know, <laughs> be interested in how people are functioning. 
don't be so worried about changing things right away. Just notice the processes. What do people do to calm down? What gets people reactive? And uh, what's your part in all of that? You know, because that's the only part you can tinker with. That's the only side of the equation you can manipulate. And it might not make a huge difference right away with everyone else, but you might be a little bit calmer. You might be a little less allergic to what's happening. And I think once people start to notice that, they get interested and they want to keep doing it. But, you know, I think if you can't see the process, it's really hard to be curious about how to manipulate it. So the very first thing to do, and you've got three things in particular for dealing with anxiety. The first one is observing what's going on. And in your book, you've got some good sort of questions that we can ask ourselves to observe. So perhaps you can share some of those with us. Absolutely. At least in in Bowen theory, there's this idea that you know, humans aren't really that special. We like to think we're these mystical, sort of unknowable creatures. (laughs) But when you dial up the stress, we only really do a couple things, at least in our relationships. And to be able to recognize those things is incredibly useful. And so some of the things, you know, that Dr. Bowen came up with, you know, where the most obvious thing we do when stress is high is we distance, right? We avoid, we stick to superficial conversations, we turn on the TV, we have a glass of wine, you know, anything, we move across the country from our family, (laughs) anything to do to get a little bit of distance, right? And the the second thing would be conflict, right? We focus on the other, each person is convinced the other person is the problem, and that is... That does not sound like a stabilizer, but it actually is. It it does calm things down and it avoids the anxiety. It keeps the anxiety from bleeding out and sort of to the rest of the family. It gets caught up in the conflict, if that makes sense. So that would be another one. Another one would be this sort of dynamic we described earlier of over and under functioning. One person becomes more responsible. The other person is sort of labeled as the problem and becomes more helpless, less responsible for themselves. So you have the seesaw effect versus the one-to-one of conflict. And then finally, you have a a, a sort of a three-part system, which is the triangle, right? When two people are in conflict, we um, can focus on a third person to help us get along. That might be a child. That might be a person we both don't like. (laughs) Or we can pull in a third person. If I'm in conflict, I'm going to call somebody and say, you won't believe what my boss did today or what my husband did, and they calm me down about the situation, right? So these sort of four different mechanisms, I think, are the most common ways that we stabilize ourselves, that we manage anxiety in our relationships. And when people can begin to see these at work in their family, I mean, their entire perspective about it changes. They begin to not be as surprised by it. They begin to see their part in it. And they say, maybe I can do something differently this time. So, yeah, I I think those are sort of the four that he outlined. And where does people-pleasing fit into that? Because that's (laughs) a a way of dealing with anxiety. You try and be perfect. I mean, that could fall under a number of things. But I think that that's just the dynamic of giving up self to keep things calm, of uh, adapting, but not in necessarily a good way, right? Looking to others to manage you. That could be a form of of underfunctioning for sure. I need your reassurance. I need your praise. I need your approval because I'm incapable of evaluating myself, of being objective about how I'm doing. I'm just going to borrow your thinking because that's quicker and, and easier. And in a way, that sounds actually perfectly acceptable because if somebody <laughs> loves us they they should be willing to reassure us and tell us that we're fine 
help me combat that thinking. Yeah, well, that's that goes back to the individuality and the togetherness, right? We need both of those things. We are social creatures. We need love and acceptance and approval. But we also need to think for ourselves and ask, how do I think I did with that presentation? You know, am I am I living a good life? You know, did I what does a good day mean? You know, these questions that we can ask ourselves that we are so quick to borrow answers from the people we love or from the culture around us, right? You know, you have to have that balance of of relationships, but also being able to to think for yourself. And why is my opinion less important than somebody on the outside's opinion? (laughs) That's a great question. You know, we give people so much power. What is it about someone else's thinking that is so much more valuable than your own? You know, if they're an expert or a professional, that can be useful. But if it's just a friend, you know... It's nice to hear the reassurance, but do you really need it? Well, and it lasts for about 30 seconds, the sort of reassurance, everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. But 30 seconds later, we want more reassurance. So you get yourself into a rather nasty little trap. So the first thing is observing and really understanding what is going on. The next thing you talk about is evaluating. Can you tell me about evaluating? Sure. So that goes back to sort of what's automatic and what's intentional, you know, to be able to say, what do I do? How do I behave when I go home for the holidays? (laughs) Uh, Or when I'm in uh, an argument with my spouse, you know, or I'm in a sticky situation at work. Does that actually reflect my best thinking about who I'm trying to be as a human or how I want to deal with with stressful situations? You know, what 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 do I do as a parent and what are my principles? as a parent, how much do those two things match up? Are they just <laughs> two separate diagrams or circles here, you know, um, to be able to, to, to look at what you do and say, is this, is this what I think is the best way to be? Any other questions to help us evaluate? Well, I think, you know, being able to ask yourself, if I'm not paying attention, what will happen? That's a question I often have mm. for clients. You know, if you, that's a great question for this year. You know, it's a new year. If I'm not paying attention, how will I go throughout the year? Most people can answer that. They can say, this is what my autopilot looks like. This is what I do to keep things calm and to feel good about myself. This is how I sort of get reactive and get caught up in conflict with others, perhaps. And then to ask yourself, well, can I make another column? And is there an alternative way of of functioning? Maybe some things you'd you'd keep the same, but then others you might want to tackle a little bit differently. So people want to jump into the changing very quickly, but I think you have to know very well what it is you do when the chips are down before you can really do anything about that. Yeah, which is why I think the observing, the evaluating is going to be much more time than the third part. Um, I talk about explore, understand, and action. And most people want to explore for mm, 10 seconds. They want to do no understanding at all and skip straight to action. Give and me tools, right? Want to, <laughs> they want tools. Give me tools, yep. And, you know, I've got plenty of tools, but there's no point using them if you don't actually know what you need them mm-hmm. for. And almost exploring and understanding have to sort of feed into each other because once you've done some understanding, you then have to go back and do a bit more exploring. And I think you've got something fairly similar. You're having observing and evaluating. They're sort of very similar things. Mm -hmm. And the evaluating will actually feed back into more observing, won't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 
To me, it's also which part of the brain you're using. You know, if you're just jumping into a relationship and you're going to try something different, there's so much reactivity in that, you know, and part of the process is, you know, turning on that front part of your brain that is just naturally interested. And uh, if you don't have that, you know, it's really hard to not immediately switch back to, to what's automatic for you. It's almost impossible. And then the third part is interrupting, which I suppose comes to the title of your book, because you say, conquer your insecurities, interrupt your anxiety. I've never heard that thought of interrupting your anxiety. So perhaps you can explain that for me. Well, I think perhaps a better way of explaining it is interrupting how you bind up anxiety or how you manage anxiety, you know, interrupting what's automatic. And that requires putting up with a a fair amount of distress <laughs> when all of a sudden you're not doing what you normally do, right? Uh, people want to feel calm. They want to feel confident. They want that right away, right? But people need to be aware that anytime you're doing something you normally wouldn't do, every piece of your body is going to go. <laughs> and inc- and maybe your family too is going to go, who are you? Change back. Please stop. <laughs> you know, I had, a, I had a client I worked with recently who was getting in touch with a family member she hadn't spoken to for a very long time. They had been estranged. And, you know, she expected to feel so good about it, but every piece of her was saying no, you know, because other people weren't doing this. How they had kept things stable for decades was to not speak, right? So to all of a sudden do something differently, you are not going to feel calm, (laughs) at least not in the short term when you begin to move towards somebody. And I think recognizing that is important for people so they don't go, wait, maybe I shouldn't do this because now I'm distressed all of a sudden. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps people trapped, isn't it? They try something else and they expect it to be better, but actually there's going to be a natural moment or maybe a while when you're going to actually feel more anxious, you're going to feel more of everything before you can come out the other side. And that is sort of terrifying, really, isn't it? Yes. And you may always will feel a little bit of it. You know, if you were human, we want people to like us and (laughs) we want to get along with each other and we want to keep things calm. So, you know, there may always be a piece of the anxiety. And I think that goes back to how do you measure success? You know, is it feeling anxiety-free or is it putting your best thinking into into action and how you live your life? And that may mean that there's a <laughs> a little more distress in certain arenas than there than there was before. But I think overall people do calm down over time and they are less reactive, you know, the the more of their their thoughtfulness they can bring to their relationships. So give us a bit more information about how to interrupt the anxiety. Well, I'll I'll give an example. Um, hmm. How's about a personal example? <laughs> I, I would love that. Because you, you, <laughs> let's face it, however evolved, however much work you've done, sure. you still feel anxious. Sure. So this is such a benign example. I feel so embarrassed sharing this. But uh, I have a grandmother who's still living. She's in her 90s. And when I visit her... She does not recycle. I'm from Tennessee, you know, my hometown. It's not, people don't really recycle much there. And, you know, I live in D.C. It's the law, you know. (laughs) And I become very distressed when she starts throwing bottles and cardboard boxes and other things in the trash, right? And so my anxious response for years was to lecture her and to try and teach her how to start recycling. (laughs) And you can imagine how effective that was. 
Um, I've got a question for you. How did that work for you? <laughs> Not well. It didn't bother her. She just ignored me. You know, and and I notice, you know, my husband is in the family, but he's not at the same time, right? Because he can be a little yeah. more thoughtful. He's not related to these people. You know, and so what he would always do would be to just hold on to the things that he used that he needs to recycle. And before we left town, we could just drop them off, you know? And to me, that was the perfect example of maturity, right? About managing self, but not trying to manage other people, you know? Uh, he was useful as an example for me, you know? And I realized that because I was so anxious about her behavior, I would give in and just start throwing things in the trash too. I'd say, well, forget it. It's not going to happen. So I just won't recycle either, right? That's that togetherness. If you're not going to do it, then I'm not going to do it either, <laughs> you know? But like I said, it's such a benign example, but eventually I got to a point where I could say, yeah, that's that's what I'll do. I'll just I'll just recycle the things I need to. I'll let her think about how she wants to function. And I became less allergic, I think, to her behavior over time because I was focused on what I wanted to do. And again, that's such an easy thing, but that's such an example of how strong the togetherness is in a family, how much we depend on, like we said earlier, people behaving better to manage our own anxiety. You know, I was acting as if if my grandmother started recycling, climate change would be reversed. <laughs> you know, all the world's problems would be solved. That was the level of, of reactiveness I was bringing to it, right? And so I was able to kind of tone that down a little bit and get the focus back on me. It took many years to do that. <laughs> and what's interesting is when you're actually in the conflict, there seems to be only two solutions. Solution number one is your grandmother is going to start recycling. Solution number two is you're going to give up recycling. Yes. And there is sort of doesn't seem to be a third option. Right. But actually, if you can stay with the anxiety for a while... There is a third option, as your clever husband discovered, which was take the stuff yourself that you want to recycle off to somewhere where they will accept the bottles and the cartons and everything else right. like that. Yes, he's so much more mature than I am. He's a, he's a beacon of maturity. <laughs> so really, and this is so important, you've got to hit the pause button on the behaviours you use to calm down. That's sort of the nub of this, yes? Yes, and that's not easy to do. It's not easy to, you know, keep silent and not ask for reassurance, right? Or to let people, say, let people at your work do things less efficiently than you might because it's their responsibility. Or to let a child struggle as they figure out how to do something without jumping in and doing it for them, right? That requires a, a little bit of, of discomfort. So this is what you call differentiation. So explain differentiation to me. Yeah, so um, this goes back to Bowen theory, you know, this idea that families and individuals sort of vary in their capacity to think and act for themselves. You know, how, how easily can a person tease out their own thinking? And put that thinking into action. You know, I compare it to, um, I'm not a basketball fan, but I, I do some sports metaphors in my work. I compare it to sort of hitting a, a three-point shot. You know, you can learn the mechanics. Of, you'll, you'll have to help us what a three-point <laughs> shot you know, is. Just, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit farther away, right? It's a harder shot to make. You right. know, you can learn the mechanics. You can practice. You can do it over and over again. 
But all of a sudden, you're in a game. You have opponents who are very invested in you not making that shot, right? (laughs) And so that's how I think about differentiation. You can know your thinking. You can know what your principles are and what you need to do. And then all of a sudden, you're thrown into a meeting or to a gathering, uh, you know, or in the car with your spouse. (laughs) And they have different thinking. They aren't happy with it. You know, they want you to do what you always done or to go along with them or to sort of assume the role they need you to, right? And um, that's, you know, that's not an easy thing to do, but there is this idea that we can work on our level of differentiation. It's not necessarily a fixed thing. And the more uh, you practice and observe sort of what your automatic functioning is, the more chance you have to to interrupt and and put that best thinking into action. And so it's it's sort of defining yourself to uh, to yourself, but also to others and how you behave. So the question is, what belongs to me and what belongs to you? Can you tell me more? I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Well, you, we've got this disagreement at work. Let's have a mm-hmm. let's have a work example. They want to have all of the reports at a particular time, whether it makes sense to do them at that time or not. Mm-hmm. You want to do them at different times. There's a lot of conflict and anxiety and bad feelings around. Working out what of these feelings belong to you, how much of it is about you, how much of it is about how you perceive that the other people are feeling about you, that is about what belongs to me and what belongs to you, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think it's so easy to personalize things when the reactivity or the anxiety is high. Um, It's so easy to label people as the villain or as the victim, right? Versus just sort of seeing the process and saying, what's being, how is the anxiety being managed here? That's a very different question than who's out, who's got it, you know, in for me? (laughs) Um, Who doesn't like me? You know, Uh, those are the things we tend to focus on, not sort of what's, you know, what's the bigger picture. And you're using this word reacting, and I think that it's very useful to explain the difference between reacting and responding. So help me with this. Right. So I talk about that in my book. Reacting is sort of the automatic. You know, it's more focused on uh, calming things down as quickly as possible. And responding is, is the thoughtful, you know, the thoughtful behavior, the putting the thinking into action, the focus on... Um, on sort of living out one's one's principles or one's thinking versus calming things down. And responding, I think, is coming from you, whereas reacting is reacting to the other person. And I think you can only respond when you've sort of taken a bit of a deep breath, really. Absolutely, yeah. Sort of teasing apart what's <laughs> what the reality is, you know. So you also suggest that we can make anxiety our friends. Now, that is a bit of a revolutionary idea. So talk me through it. Yeah. So, you know, I think this goes back to our our, our discussion earlier about anxiety serving a purpose, right? Uh, it's useful to know when there's danger, when there's a threat, but it's not always um, something you need to pay attention to or address. You know, often I will have clients, this is kind of a funny exercise, but I will sometimes have therapy clients where I'll say, you know, write a letter from anxiety to yourself, you know, and it would say, you know, dear Kathleen, here are some things that I think are going to go terribly wrong today. (laughs) 
I'm really worried that this person thinks you're, you know, an idiot (laughs) or um, just doesn't like you and finds you annoying. Maybe you should do something about that, you know, and you start to realize how sort of hyperbolic it is when you have it written out, right? And then the next thing I'll have a person do is to write a letter back to the anxiety, you know, and to say something. People usually say something like, you know, I really appreciate what you're trying to do here, (laughs) but I think... I think it's, you know, I'll pay attention to this. That's useful to know. But I really think this other stuff is going to be okay, you know? And so that's such a different way of approaching it than, you know, trying to cut it out or, you know, demolish it. Or um, we're so aggressive in our and militaristic in our language with mental health. <laughs> but, you know, just being able to say, you know, he's... he. This this person has my best interests at heart, but he, you know, he doesn't always know what he's talking about, right? I always joke I give my anxiety a name. I call him Carl. You know, people ask, like, how how's Carl doing? And I say, oh, you know, he's really concerned about this, but I think it's going to work out, you know? And I think adding a little bit of humor to it has been useful for me and and for other people. To be able to see, you know, the in her book, um, Big Magic, you know, the writer Elizabeth Gilbert, she talks about how anxiety is along for the ride, but it's just in the back seat. It's not driving the car. And I like that metaphor. You know, you can never get rid of it. It's going to be a piece of how you live your life, if, especially if you're doing new things and you're trying to function differently. But it doesn't have to sort of control what you do moment to moment. And that, that's been useful for me to think of it that way. I love that idea that um, you have a anxiety writing you a letter, and I love the idea that you write a letter back to it <laughs> even more. That That is lovely. And it's a beautiful image. Anxiety is a backseat driver. You know, you don't have to pay attention. I think of it as the back of the brain talking to the front of the brain, right? You know, both serve a purpose, but who's driving, you know, like you said. Any other advice on dealing with anxiety? Well, I think... You know, the people who are able to, you know, laugh at themselves a little bit, not not every situation is a humorous one, but who are able to kind of see it as, you know, a slow, sometimes funny, long game. You know, we get so focused on symptoms and, you know, insurance, at least in America, insurance companies don't really help with that because they want you to come <laughs> eight times and be fixed, right? But this idea of, Working on your own maturity is a very long game, and that doesn't mean that small things can't make a big difference, but seeing it as sort of a lifelong endeavor to be a little bit more of a self and how you relate to other humans, it's a lifelong endeavor to teach your brain that some things are survivable and manageable. Not all of us learned that as kids. You know, it took me a little bit longer to learn that quitting something or not doing as well as I could was actually quite a quite manageable thing. Um, and so that's that's part of the the journey of life is to, to slowly learn um, that the threats you thought were really scary actually aren't that bad or maybe even useful. And that's not, you know, that's not something that happens quickly. And it's not something I'd say that even happens in, in a therapist's office. It's sort of going out there and, and putting yourself into situations where you relate to people differently. And how did you learn to do that to yourself? Oh, gosh. Well, I learned, you know, I learned um, it in a number of ways. You know, my mom actually died when I was in college, uh, which was was oh, very gosh. sad, um, you know, and I think it really changed my perspective on sort of what I valued and what was important in life at a young age. I also think, you know, um, 
I went to Harvard for undergrad, and I think being in an environment like that was good for me because all of a sudden I couldn't be the best anymore. So if that was where I was getting my identity, I was going to be pretty disappointed. <laughs> and I think that that did give me the freedom to sort of say, well, what else is interesting about me? What am I curious about? What's worth pursuing that is doesn't really lined up with sort of the world's definition of, of achievement or success? Uh, and I feel very lucky to have gotten that opportunity to kind of not have that pressure on me in a way anymore, um, which was great. Because I can imagine a lot of people arriving at one of those hothouse universities would actually wither because, you know, if their whole identity is being top of the class and suddenly you've got everybody from the whole of the United States as top of their class there as well, that must be a huge shock and it's a certain amount of resilience to actually accept that and not go to pieces. Yeah, you know, and I, I'd say um, living in Washington, D.C., I see a fair amount of that as well. <laughs> you know, people who their identity is tied up in their achieving in their jobs and there's a, you know, they lose their job or there's an administration change or something else happens. And all of a sudden that that way of binding their anxiety or propping themselves up gets, you know, pulled out from underneath them. Um and they have to to be a little bit more creative and flexible than they had been before with how they define themselves. And I don't know if this is going to be helpful or not, but I keep on thinking of something about forgiveness. And I had a, a friend, it was suggested to him by his therapist that he went back through the different stages of his, of his life, remember what he actually didn't like, you know, what he felt were failures or made him anxious and actually imagined forgiving himself for all of those things, you know, forgiving himself for being, in this case, not the top of the tops, mm. just, to, you know, just a very bright kid sort of kind of thing. And that sort of idea of going back through all of those really difficult and emotional times and actually forgiving yourself, you know, you did the best that you could at the time. And somehow, as I'm sitting here, that feels like quite a useful thing to be thinking about. Actually, forgiveness as a to forgive ourselves for our anxious behaviours in the past. You know, that's what seemed like a good strategy at the time, and that's okay. We can forgive ourselves for that. What are your reactions to I, that? I love that. Yeah, I've, I'd never thought of, of that before, but that's a wonderful way of thinking about it. You know, I think of that as sort of similar to how we get focused on other people. You know, if you would just change, then I would feel better. And I think it's easy to kind of do that with your past self, <laughs> you know, to say, if you had just done X, your life would have been differently, right? And that is that focus on the the variable that you can't control, you know, how does that calm you down, you know, to some degree to have those regrets, you know? Well, it just makes each decision harder to make because you're thinking of your future self being annoyed with you for the mistake you're about to make now. <laughs> so I think if you, I think forgiveness of your past selves and sort of effectively calling them up and forgiving them because they did their best under yeah. the circumstances feels to be quite helpful. Yeah. You know, that looks like a lot of the work I do with people and their families, you know, going back a couple of generations and seeing what people were up against and how their responses were their best attempts <laughs> to keep things going, you know, to chug along. And that's really helpful for people. They're able to blame less uh, and to be more objective about, you know, like I said, what people were up against. And I think you absolutely can do the same thing with yourself. 
The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So something new is that we're asking everybody who has an issue to write in and share a letter with us. If you go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall forward slash podcast, you'll find right at the very bottom a contact form where you can use it to feedback. You can give suggestions of topics we might cover and you can write in a letter that myself and my guests will contemplate. And this is the letter that I'm going to be discussing with Kathleen. It seems like I spend big chunks of my life tiptoeing around problems and avoiding conflict. When there is something that annoys me, like the rap music my wife likes to play in the car, I will put up with it rather than spend the journey in unpleasantness or trying desperately to find something that we both like but failing as she gets increasingly irritated. I tell myself it's not such a big deal listening to her music, but the net result is that I put up and zone out rather than using the journey to chat together and enjoy each other's conversation. I know this is a trivial example, but it speaks to the pattern. When my wife explodes, it takes her about seven minutes to calm down and forget it, but it takes me hours and perhaps days. I feel like complete SH apostrophe, not apostrophe, star T, and completely helpless and hopeless. So I generally don't go there. However, after a while, something will build up to a head and I'll try and say something, but it comes out all wrong. She will tell me I'm making it all about me, I'm selfish, and if I lose my temper, then I'm the bad guy. And despite all my legitimate issues, we're talking about what's wrong with me. So, did you recognize that letter, Kathleen? Yes, I did. I mean, that's such a great, I don't want to say great, not to minimize the challenge, but it's such a great example of so many things we talked about today. You know, the first thing I think of is giving up self to stabilize a relationship, right? Going along with things to keep things calm. You know, I would want to know, is this a, is this a guy? I, I don't want to assume but uh, yeah, yeah okay. it is a guy. Yes. You know, I would yeah. want to know more about this guy's family. What was his functional position in his family? How did, <laughs> what did he go along with to keep things calm? How was that modeled to him? I think it's so easy to kind of feel trapped just focusing on the marital conflict and being able to zoom out and see where this happens in other relationships is useful for people, you know? maybe practicing it and if his parents are still living or <laughs> at work you know there's so many places to to work on growing up a little bit not just the marriage um, that's a piece of it but there are all different ways to to work on not just going along with things is my first thought yeah and i think that making it a more general point stops it being about the fact that your wife has got terrible taste <laughs> in music and actually it's about your behaviors because you do this in other places as well so that's good once you actually realize that you're giving up self how do you approach it because it, it sort of seems he's trying to approach it but not in a way that seems to be working for him yeah you know i think that's what you know i think going back to what we were just talking about with forgiving yourself and and not being so hard about and i see you know there's a lot of self criticism you read through this whether it's direct or sort of beneath the surface of this letter you know just being able to to kind of say well you know i <laughs> 
<laughs> I've made some attempts. They haven't been useful. You know, what else, what else can I do? You know, is there a way for me to, to share my thinking with a little more re- maturity, a little less reactivity? Can I be aware that if I do something different, I need to give my wife a little bit of time to catch up because we play this out a certain way. And all of a sudden, if I've changed my piece, predictably, she's going to say I'm unfair or I'm mean or um, say something like, I don't know you anymore. You know, <laughs> And that takes some time. <laughs> my husband has been captured by aliens <laughs> and uh, they've replaced a replica <laughs> of him. I've heard that one yeah. before. There's a saying... Um, Another one, woman who is a psychiatrist trained in Bowen theory, her name was Dr. Roberta Gilbert. She had this saying that would go, believe in your position enough to be calm for it. You know, you don't have to define yourself by yelling or, or demanding that the other person change. Right. But it does take it does take time for the other person to catch up a little bit. Believe in your position enough to be calm about it. Because actually, if you're defending it to the very end, it sort of suggests you're not actually that, you don't have very strong belief Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. What about processing his feelings a little bit quicker? I think that might be helpful. You know, so instead of the argument lasting for hours or days, how can it come through a little bit quicker? Because, you know, if we're going to have to have this extra anxiety as we get out of our old anxiety management techniques, we sort of want to get that processed a bit quicker (laughs) than hours and days, really. So any help with that? Well, I think just being objective, you know, and not so hard on yourself. I think of I am very sensitive to to criticism. I think that goes back to sort of what we talked about with my childhood a little bit, you know. But if somebody sends me a critical email that I need to respond to, you know, it could throw off my whole day, you know. And so it took me a while to kind of say, okay, well, maybe I'm only distracted for seven hours now instead of 12, you know. How do, how do I want to um, be more responsible for, you know, to be able to say when I stand up or take a position in, on something in my marriage, it is going to cause me some distress. How would I like to be responsible for that distress? What would I like to do? What would I like to not do? That could be, I'd like to not drink alcohol or <laughs> complain to other people and ask them to reassure me that I did the right thing, right? Those sort of easy things we do to manage it. Can I do other things that are a little bit more about self-regulating than about sort of borrowing it from other things? You know, and if I can do that, that's how I'm going to define success. Not the length of the distress, you know, because I think it's easy to get focused on that versus what a person actually does. So suggestions for self-regulating. Oh, you know, well, that's what people want, right? They want the the breathing exercise or the yoga routine or the meditation or biofeedback. I mean, I think I don't think of there as being one way. I think there are a million different ways to be responsible for your anxiety. And some people specialize in helping people figure that out. That's not really something that I do um, because I think it's easy to lend people the answers. And that's just me lending myself to them and telling them you need to do this and everything will be okay. Um, you know, and so I think the people can just find sort of what they're naturally interested in and, and curious about and and what works for them. And they're, you know, they're, like I said, there are a million ways to do that. And one of them that isn't a good one is swallowing it. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I think people tend to confuse 
sort of stamping down their or suppressing or swallowing their feelings versus sort of dialing down the feelings because you think about what's happening differently. You know, you don't see it as threatening as it is. You see it as a, as a systems thing, right? When I when I take a position on something, the other person will react strongly in an effort to get me to change back. My wife will yell at me. She might say that I'm being unreasonable. You know, I forget what he says in this letter, but that is her attempt to go back to the way we stabilized things before. And that is, that's a little bit different way of thinking about it than blaming a person mm. or seeing it as a, a personality trait, if that makes sense. So instead of actually being caught up in the argument, you can step back and see the bigger picture. Oh, she's trying to push things back to normality, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of getting angry about that, think, well, that's understandable. But if I play along too in the old way, we're going to get stuck in the old way. What yeah. can I do differently? These are all things that's easy to think about as a parent, right? <laughs> like say, okay, I have to hold this position I've taken with my child because they're going to do everything in their power to, to kind of weasel their way back into getting what they want, right? A parent knows that. But with other adults, we so quickly forget <laughs> that you have to hold your position for a little bit before the other person will reorient themselves. <laughs> Believe in your position enough to be calm. That's lovely. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be remembering <laughs> that today. Well, You've been a witness today on The Meaningful Life, so I have to turn the spotlight on you and ask what makes your life meaningful? Well, this is an obvious answer from a person with my training, but I would say relationships. You know, I think for a a long time in my life, I was very focused and still am to a degree, you know, on what I could do, what I could produce, what I could achieve. But I think about sort of what has made my life the most meaningful, what has actually helped manage my anxiety well it, it, more than a- accomplishing things is being connected to people um having those strong one-to-one relationships that aren't just superficial or trying to look good or trying to please each other they're you know being able to share my interests and challenges uh with people who are close to me is the best part of life so sort of being rather than achieving absolutely you know having that being an individual, but also being connected as an individual. That's the sort of the heart of, of differentiation. So getting the balance right in, in between being an individual and being part of a system. There's great things about both. <laughs> yeah. And we tend, to, we tend to focus on either one or the other, but it's finding the sweet spot between the two is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Now, this is where the conversation ends for most people. But if you become a supporter of The Meaningful Life, you're going to find out the three things that Kathleen knows deep down to be true. So if you'd like to find out more details about that, here comes the information. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. 
visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.